Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Chapter 11. In just a minute, we're going to read from verse 2 to verse 16. It's page 812 in the church Bibles, if that would be of some help to you. Um, If you don't know, my name is Joe Franzone, and I serve here as the pastor. And it's my privilege to be here with you this morning. And also, I just want to tag along to what Dale said in thanking the congregation for their wonderful service last night. Um, We do many things well, and I think one of the things we do very well is serving. So it's a terrific privilege to serve Jesus Christ in the capacity that we did last night alongside of you. And it's uh, it's a great joy, an an actual fact, when we're working side by side for the Master. So thank you for that. And we will continue to pray for those that were here that are outside of Jesus Christ. So one more thing before we read. If you're wondering why we're in these verses this morning, we've been working through uh, 1 Corinthians since October and so of last year. And so that's why we are here where we're here. This might seem a strange text to some of us as we read it, but we'll do our best to explain at least part of it. This is a, a one and a two part talk, so just keep that in mind. Okay, let's hear the word of the Lord. Verse 2, chapter 11, 1 Corinthians. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. Now, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head and every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or shaved, she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. For this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Amen. May God grant us understanding of his word as we study this this passage together. I just remembered, usually I say, if you have any questions, I'll be glad to answer them. I didn't say that this time, so, but I still will if if you have them. Okay, let's pray, because we're going to need it, right? (laughs) Well, Father, we thank you so much for giving to us physically and materially and spiritually in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, as some of us As you know, we've battled through sickness and disease, and you've been so gracious. And some of us, God, have been tried and tested in trial and the mental and the soul-bending pain that comes with it, and you have been our strength. 
And some of us, God, have been losing the fight of indwelling sin, and yet your grace has abounded. And so as we pray this morning, and as we enter into the season of thanksgiving, we ask, God, that you would receive our genuine and our heartfelt thanks for all the ways now and forever you have and you will provide for us. And as your servant, Father, and as this congregation's servant and pastor, I sincerely and humbly ask that you would grant to your people an unbelievably happy, joyful, tender, peaceful, restful, thankful, and prosperous Thanksgiving week as we all keep our eyes on you and your son who shed his blood for our sin. God, it's a tremendous privilege to live in a place where we can enjoy what many of us are going to enjoy in the coming days. And it is a mercy, God, that you give these times and these seasons to us. So we just want you to know that we are extremely grateful. And the good things that you give us, we pray for the world that is in desperate need of good things. Now, Father, as we study your word, this is not an easy text to understand. So as always, God, we need all of you to help all of us. And we ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Okay. So as you think about our world, probably one of the assaults in society is how we rebel against or we redefine without any real consideration whatsoever God's established lines of authority in the world that he's made which restrain evil and help to preserve order. So this is a fallen world, clearly. It's a corrupt world. It is a world filled with sin and death. It didn't start out that way, but it is that way now. And so God has put four restraints, at least four restraints, in place in his creation to restrain evil. The first of which is the law of God in the heart. And the weapon of restraint is the human conscience. So our conscience is our moral compass. It's not perfect, but it is a moral compass. It makes us feel bad when we do bad, therein restraining us when we hunger for evil. The second restraint is the family. And the weapon of restraint is parental love and instruction and discipline. If dad isn't being a dad, and if mom isn't being a mom, then this restraint begins to weaken, and evil is unrestrained. The third restraint God has established is civil government. And the weapon of restraint is a serious one. It is the sword, Romans 13. And Romans 13 says that these civil authorities... Our leaders, our men and women in uniform, are agents of God, agents of his wrath to bring fear and punishment on evildoers. And the fourth restraint is the church. And its weapon is the gospel. And it is the most powerful of all the restraints because only the gospel of Jesus Christ can change human hearts. So the gospel fulfills our deepest need which God says is having our sins forgiven so that we would be right and reconciled to him. And the gospel gives us new power in order to restrain indwelling sin. So God himself 
has established these restraints, these authorities in creation, and when his order is ignored, reduced, and probably for our time when it's redefined, you have disorder, you have rebellion, and you have a society that could come apart at the seams. 1 Samuel 15, 22, and 23. Obedience is better than sacrifice. And submission is better than offering the fat of rams. For rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft. And insubordination as bad as worshiping idols. Now, the first three restraints, conscience, family, and civil authority, has nothing to do with one being a Christian or not. These are inherent restraints in the world God has made to guard her from chaos. These are common graces that God gives commonly among all people. The final restraint, the church, is of course us telling the world, showing the world that sin is our problem, there is something past now, there is a new world coming, and God will destroy this world to usher in his new world, and Christ is the key, the only key, to get you and I into that world. And one of the reasons why I say all this is you probably figured out in the reading of our verses in chapter 11, a text like this is not explained easy. Therefore, a text like this really doesn't preach easy. Subsequently, a text like this may not be received easy. So God has put these restraints in society to restrain evil. And now we're going to find out that God brings order into the world. He establishes a way of viewing the world. So if your Bible's open, verse 3, it speaks of order. The head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man. It speaks of submission. This is what should happen, and this is what should not happen in worship. Its whole argument is based not on redemption, how God was reconciling the world through Jesus Christ, but rather his argument is on creation, how God made this world, how he ordered this world into existence in a certain way. So this is a moral, ordered universe created by a moral and orderly God. Now, if we pay attention, even just a bit of attention to culture, then I think you would agree with me that authority and order and submission has fallen on hard times. Conscience, parents, government, and the church and all the inherent lines of authority in each, established by God, seem to be under constant assault. I mean, all it takes is a smartphone with a camera, and leaders can be done away with pretty quickly. I mean, in my context, all it takes is one bad sentence, one difficult look, and it's like, it's over. So there's a great amount of burden that we should understand that comes with leadership, all forms of leadership, including parental leadership. Now, one of the reasons probably is because people rebel so much is, yes, the uses and abuses that are inherent in those with authority. Uh, This is Lord Action. You'll remember this quote. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But, and not to give any excuse at all, because I actually enjoy when people question authority because it helps leaders be better. But anyway, not to give any excuse, but 
Men and women got it wrong when it comes to authority the first time someone heard the words, okay, you're in charge, right? Because isn't that what happened in the garden, in paradise, in the place where everything was good and right and pure in the beginning? Uh, Adam, you're in charge, okay? And then in relatively short order, sin and death came into the world. But, and listen carefully, after that horror, was Adam still the husband? And was Eve still the wife? Did that order matter? Did God say, okay, you know what, let's try this again in reverse? Did he do that? No. Why not? Because it was done the way God wanted it to be done. And certainly another reason why we go down this line by way of introduction is that at this point in our history, postmodern men and women and young people have an awfully difficult time submitting to authority. Now, now they usually don't if they find that submission to authority will somehow give them or us a personal benefit, right? And that makes sense on one level. We should understand that. This is good for me. I like it, so I'll do it. I mean, we have to understand that. Uh, politicians, at the very least, they understand that. But you speak of common good and personal sacrifice, and you say to them, no. Or your opinion is accepted, but it's rejected because it's actually wrong. Then that might not go over so well, especially in a culture which attributes more and more importance to and power to the individual self than ever before. Now, I'm a student of history. I'm not the best, but I am a student of history. And I don't think there's any other time in history where, where the self, the individual self, is being exalted to the place that it is now. Because the expression of the individual self is, is full bent now, and it's almost law that you have to express yourself the way you want to. So postmodern men and women then, we no longer think that um, we have only the power to discover truth, but we think that we now have the power to actually create truth. Now, I'm going to say that again because it's very important. We no longer think that we have the power just to discover truth. We think that we now have the power to actually create truth. Thereby, we redefine what the meaning of our existence is, the why we are here question. We redefine the meaning of what is a man or what is a woman or what is a child or what is marriage. We redefine why should I submit to anyone question. Forgetting or ignoring that God Almighty has already spoken to those things. Therein, we redefine how God has already answered those questions and ordered his world. Now, I've given you this quote before, I'm pretty sure. 1947, Martin Lloyd-Jones, pastor of Great Britain, responding to his context. Listen to what he said. The popular view of man is the cult of self-expression, which is a view that says one has a right to express oneself even at the expense of others. And what one likes or wants is therefore of necessity legitimate. And he continues, and the only way to get to that is when the self is at the very center of the universe. Again, the only way to get to that is when the self is at the very center of the universe. Listen to Proverbs 28.2. When a country is rebellious, it has many rulers. You see, the hard work of study and submission can be so easily replaced by the easy work of subjective impressions and feelings and thoughts. Now, 
you take that thought and you place it into a church and more specifically place that thought in of all places public worship in a church, which we're going to learn in the coming weeks, really, really matters. And you have some of what was happening in the church in Corinth. There was insubordination in worship. Some ladies were doing things they ought not to do. So the problem Paul is addressing in chapter 11, uh, beginning in verse 2, is chiefly two major things, both of which have to do with disorder and insubordination in public worship. So the first has to do with the conduct of women in public worship. The second has to do with the misconduct of men and women at the Lord's Supper. And as you can see and tell by the reading of these verses, the issue here is so important to Paul that Paul begins at the beginning. I mean, he goes all the way back to creation to give some of the answers that are needed. Now, loved ones, I want you to think with me because this might be the best part of the sermon. There's a problem in that church in public worship. And Paul addresses that problem not with the normal mechanisms we might think. He's not saying, well, you know what? This is working over there, so why don't you guys try that over here? He's not saying, holy smokes, people really like that over there. Why don't you give it a go over here? He's not saying, you know what? Why don't you take a vote and let majority rule? Paul does not do that. It's not even crossing his mind. But what he does give them is theology. He goes back to the beginning, creation, how God ordered this world, how God designed the universe to address their future response in public worship in such a way that pleases who? Right? That's the question. Who is this going to please? Who's the who in public worship? Who's the really big deal in public worship? Because we're not singing to ourselves. We're not talking to ourselves. We're not praying to ourselves. You see, the big deal in public worship is our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God in His glory is the preoccupation in worship before man and His need. Is man and His need important? Absolutely. But it's not as important as God and His glory. Loved ones, what Paul is saying, essentially, that it's not enough to worship the right God. But we have to worship the right God in the right way. Public worship cannot be a free-for-all. Therefore, if that's true, and I'm prepared to say it's true, how important do you think order in public worship is? Because Paul is not using conventional wisdom here. He's not being pragmatic. He's touching on a, what we consider by some, a very controversial issue, the role of men and the role of women, especially as it pertains to public worship. So our... Our concern this morning, thank God, is only verses 2 and 3, okay? And as I was thinking last night and early this morning, I think I I was going into this, verse 3 is really important, the most important. Well, it is, but verse 2 is actually just as important, and I think as we work through it, we're going to find that to be the case. So, we have two points. Number one, praise, a praise, and, and then second, a principle, okay? So, here's the praise. Now, You'll probably remember, most of you remember that, much of the letter that Paul uh, writes to them is basically a response to, a, to question and answers that the church had given Paul, right? So we know this because chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says, now for the matters you wrote about. So the church had questions and they knew Paul was the one that they should address for answers. Let's give me a few examples. Chapter 7, verse 8, now to the widows and unmarried, I, Paul, say, chapter 7, verse 10, to the married, I give this command. 
Chapter 7, verse 12, to the rest I say. Chapter 8, verse 1, now about food sacrifice to idols. Chapter 12, verse 1, now about spiritual gifts. So if you went home today and you read this whole letter, one of the things that would come through pretty clearly is Paul is working through a list of questions the church had for Paul, and he begins to answer them as God's apostle, right? He's an apostle of Christ by God's will. So he's the one to talk to. And so what he does in verse 2 is he begins to give pleasure to them. He begins to praise them. Verse 2, praise you for remembering him essentially in everything. Now, as we go through this, one of the things I think we need to know is that I think the main issue with this church is not that they were not a perfect church because they'll never be a perfect church this side of heaven. The problem is they're not applying what they know to be true. That is their problem. In other words, they don't apply right thinking in order that they can have right living because disorder is one of the problems in Corinth. So they're like uh, James. Remember James says... um, You hear the word of God, but you go away. You forget what's said so that you don't do what it says. So the gap between the proclamation of the word and the application of the word in our lives is way too large in Corinth, and therein lies the problem. So they go home after listening to the word being taught, and they never question themselves. They never question any of their lines of thinking after the word of God is proclaimed. They heard, they knew, but they just didn't apply. They heard but they had trouble holding on to what they heard. Now, with respect to what they heard, again, verse 2, I praise you for remembering me and everything. In other words, what Paul was saying is, thank you for asking me those questions. Thank you for remembering me, right? He was their Bible answer man. They didn't have a complete New Testament as we enjoy and we should thank God for. But as an apostle, he spoke for God. And so for a year and a half, this is Acts 18, 11, for a year and a half, Paul taught the word of God. He taught the whole counsel of God to the church. And then Paul worked very hard, and this is important, he worked very hard to give them the central truths of the Christian faith, right? And he wanted the central truths, the main and plain things, to be fixed in their mind so that it could be applied in their living. Paul was being a good dad. Well, what do good Christian dads do? Well, they teach basic Christian doctrine. Right? That's what they do. So they don't teach just be good and, and be nice and all that stuff. They teach justification. They teach the cross, atonement, adoption. They teach about God's holiness and the Trinity and so on. That's what dads do, and that's what Paul was doing. So he taught them, this church, the essentials, so that the truth then would stick in their head. Now, here are Paul's essentials. Let me just give them to you. They're right in the Bible. For example, chapter 11, verse 23, Paul says, What I received from the Lord, I passed on, past tense, to you. And so if you look at that, he reminds them of the value and importance of communion. Chapter 15, verse 1. Now, loved ones, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you've taken your stand. Chapter 15, verse 3. For what I received, same phrase, I passed on to you, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. So these are Paul's essentials. And they remain our essentials. This is not something new then that they need to know, but this is something old that they can never forget. And if they do forget, then they'll forget to apply. Loved ones, the gospel, as it's been said before, is is not the ABCs of the Christian life. It is the A to Z to the Christian life. It, it, It has to be applied in the totality of our thinking. 
The gospel defines our identity, right? Not our houses and our jobs and, our, and all that silly stuff. No, the gospel defines our identity. The gospel establishes our unity. Why are we here together? Well, it has to be because of Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, ascended, and returning. And the gospel frames all our activity. Why do we do what we do? Why do we do a Thanksgiving supper? Why do we do a pig roast? Why do we do so much evangelistic activity? Because the gospel frames all our activity. So the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, then, is the key to every essential thing. Let me say it like this. Every essential question that you and I have in our lives can be answered by the work of Christ on the cross. So if that is true, is it any wonder that Paul, in his year and a half teaching session to the church, begins to praise them for remembering him and remembering the nature of the gospel, remembering the necessity of communion and the death of Jesus Christ for our sins. So, so this isn't any fancy stuff, is it? This isn't religious fanaticism. This is just the basics. And that's what they heard. Now, what about what they were holding on to? Well, they were holding on to, as you would probably guess, what they heard. Verse 2b, holding on to the teachings just as I passed them down to you. In other words, he's telling the church, you guys stayed on the line. You didn't add anything. You didn't subtract anything. There was no demotion of the essential truths of the faith. They were gospel people. Now, in verse 2b, if you have another translation, it might use the word tradition or traditions in place of the NIV um, teachings. But the word is essentially this. It means teachings that were passed down from Paul. Let me give you one example. It's in uh, 2 Thessalon- uh, Thessalonians. Paul says, Brothers, stand firm and hold to the teaching. Same word there in verse 2. As we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or letter. And you see, that was Paul's priority as an apostle to all, get that, to all the churches. So if you would go home and read 1 and 2 Timothy, you find that Paul keeps telling Timothy, Timothy's a pastor. He says, Timothy, hold to the pattern of sound teaching. Timothy, make sure you guard the gospel. Timothy, you make sure that church relies on the gospel. Timothy, you entrust that same gospel to the next generation, capable men, so that they can take it to the coming generation. Gospel, gospel, gospel. The essentials, the basics. Hold to the teaching just as they were given. And that is so important, especially in relation to what takes place here Sunday by Sunday, that we do the exact same, that we follow that pattern. Do the basics well. Stay on the line. So we're not very interested as a congregation in the four blood moons, whatever that was about a year ago. We don't care about the salt covenant. We don't care about how to get God's super duper favor as if he didn't give it to us when he died for our sins on the cross. We don't care about the four secrets of the Spirit or the four keys to financial freedom or any kind of unhealthy preoccupation with the end of the world. No, what do we care about? You tell me the story of how God became man and he dwelt among us. Explain that to me. That he died for me, that he redeems me, that he justifies me, and he keeps on sanctifying me. You tell me how it is even possible that me of all people right now am spotless before the throne of God. Tell me how that happens. Tell me why the church is indispensable and not unnecessary. Help me understand worship. Help me understand communion. And you see, the lesson for us then is so reassuring because as bad as the church in Corinth was, as self-aware as it was not, as immoral as it was, 
as weak as they were and as cruel as they were to Paul, I mean, it was so bad there that any level-headed person would just kind of wash their hands from them and say, you know what, I am out of here if it's going to be this way. They were not perfect. No church is. But there was some good. And Paul praises them for that. And he's not going to leave them to find a better group. Okay, so let's just make application to our context among a group of imperfect people like us. Of course, if you are perfect, just bear with us for just the next few seconds. Your leaders are not perfect. Your teachers are not perfect. Your committee chairs are not perfect. Your servants who serve so much here, they're not perfect. All of you are not perfect, and clearly your pastor's not perfect. So what do we do? Well, we thank God for his grace. We thank him for the gospel received. We thank him for not abandoning us in our daily sin. And we thank him for the fact that we are hearing and by God's power, we're trying to hold on. And God, by his grace, has brought us all here together. And the fact that we are here, we reveal what is important to us. Therefore, listen carefully. The gospel is the only basis for our unity. Because if we need something else to be united other than Jesus Christ, then we move from being a church to a club right? Clubs are neat, but they're clubs. They don't change lives, and they have an expiration date. So as Christians, we keep holding on to the teachings that have been passed down to us from Paul, who received them from Christ, and now we have them, thankfully, from his word. Again, the essentials, the basics, the things that matter most. It's a pattern for all true churches. It's not a free-for-all. The church is not being led by the, the mind of a mere man. Well, this sounds neat to talk about today. I guess I'll talk about it today. It has a given pattern. It has to hold to the teaching. No variances, even in the slightest. Archbishop Justin, he's the Archbishop of the Church of England. He's an evangelical. At his ordination ceremony, listen to what he said, part of what he said. If we sever our roots in Christ, we abandon the stability which enables good decision-making. There can be no final justice or security or love or hope in our society if it is not finally based on rootedness in Christ. And then he ends perfectly. I come knowing nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2. And I know it in weakness, and I know it in fear, and in much trembling. And loved ones, that is it. That is it. Those are the essentials. Those are our rally points. These are the things that keep us together. First point, then praise. Paul gives gospel instruction, brings stability, and he brings order and clarity to a church, like all churches, which are prone to wonder. Second point, verse 3, the hard part. Now, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, before Paul gives instruction, he gives a principle. The principle is verse 3. So before he corrects, he gives a principle. The problem, again, that there were ladies in the church who said, I can worship any way I like. I'm free, I'm free, I'm free. 
But Paul is going to explain to them that you can't say that and you can't do that. And the reason why is because there's a divine order. God has put a divine order, authority in creation, in society, in the home, and in the church. And this principle encompasses his creation. And the creation can't exist orderly if the created beings are not following his created order. So he has that phrase, I would have you to know. So Paul is going to introduce to them a vital truth. I would have you to know. This could be new to them. It could be that the situation in worship uh, drove Paul to say this truth to them. I'm not sure, but I think that might be the case. And so you remember that when Paul speaks, he speaks the very word of God. And it was an oral tradition first. So he spoke, and then he wrote, and then the letters were preserved so that we can make application in our own time. That's why verse 16 says what it says. This is an application for the church universal. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. And so again, Paul calls into question, or calls into attention, excuse me, the pattern of authority. And he goes back to creation. Do you see your Bibles, verses 8 and 9? That's just creation stuff. These are creation principles. How man and how woman were created. Why man and why woman were created. So this is about authority. This is about submission, which again, why it can be so difficult to embrace or even to, to instruct. So what I want you to notice first, I want you to notice the all-inclusive nature of his words. Verse 3, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. So Paul doesn't say the head of every Christian man is Christ. He says the head of every man is Christ. The fact that an unbelieving man may not accept this does not change the truth. Christ is the head of every man. And at the day and at the name of Jesus, who is the head of every man, every man, Christian or not, will bow their knee to acknowledge Jesus is the head to the glory of God the Father. Because if Jesus says, come into heaven, we can go into heaven. But if he says, you can't come into heaven, then we cannot go to heaven. Why is that the case? Because Jesus is Lord. He is the Lord of all. He's the head. So what Paul does... He takes that debatable issue, men and women, and he frames it between the undebated issue, the relation between Jesus Christ and God. So let's start there. Christ is the head of every man. God is the head of Christ. Now, in the case of the latter, are both Christ and God equal in glory, authority, and power? Absolutely. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. The Father and the Son, same in substance, equal in power and glory. In other words, they're the same in status, but they're different in function. Okay, in what way? Well, here's one way. What the Father planned, our redemption, the Son provided by coming to earth and dying on the cross. The Father sets the paces for the Son, and the Son submits to the Father. He executes the Father's will, even, says Philippians 2.8, even to the point of his death. So through Christ, and though Christ is divine, he doesn't throw his divine weight around, but perfectly submits to the Father. Therefore, when it comes to a man and a woman, when it comes to husband and wife, the man is no more superior to the woman than God is superior to Christ. The husband is no more superior to his wife than God is superior to Christ. But Christ chooses to submit to the Father. And in the same bent, the woman submits to the man. The wife submits to the husband. 
This has nothing to do with dignity or worth, but design and duty and accountability. Again, this is a matter of function. It is not a matter of status. I'll say this later on. Don't think chain of command here. If you think chain of command, you ruin your thought process. So, in saying that, does that mean that every woman must submit to every man? Clearly not, because the context here is of public worship. So, the principle is creation. The application is public worship. In other words, the context here in public worship was that the ladies in the church in Corinth were disruptive to men by doing things they ought not to be done in the church, and they were playing the role of a man in public worship. And Paul says, don't do that. So this, again, is not a chain of command. This is a love thing. The love of God in creation, ordering creation for its well-being. The love of a woman and a man to fulfill God's design and obey his commands. Just as the Son does not under compulsion, but love submits to the Father's plan again to his death. And Jesus, having died for the church in his resurrection, loves the church so much that he orders the church in a certain way and he promises her that it will continue on. It will continue on. So, the leadership of the Father over the Son, the Son over man, man over woman, and husband over wife is a creation principle. It's given in wisdom, and it's given in love to give order to this world. Okay. Was the second, was, was the son, Christ, was the son a second-class person to the father? Clearly not. Is a woman a second-class person to a man? Clearly not. And if you're ma- married, you better not think that way, right? But, you know, if you're a male chauvinist, and you've been looking for a way to begin your reign of terror, right? I'm going to do nothing. I'm going to sit around the house. I'm going to make a mess and watch sports all the time while the missus does the chores. Then you better remember how much Jesus Christ loved the church, uh, Ephesians 5, and gave himself up for her. And then do likewise. Because Christ, your head, says so. And ladies, Nothing. I have a four-hour trip with my wife this afternoon. (laughs) I don't know, though. Maybe she'll... Just kidding. We need to close. I'm going to give you a really great quote from a commentary and then say a couple things and we'll be done. More to say, but I think at least we have a foundation. This is uh, John MacArthur. God makes no distinction between men and women as far as personal worth, abilities, intellect, or spirituality are concerned. Both as human beings and as Christians, women in general are completely equal to men spiritually. Some women obviously are even superior to some men in abilities, intellect, maturity, and spirituality. God established the principle of male authority and female subordination for the purpose of order and complementation, not on the basis of any innate superiority of males. An employee may be more intelligent and more skilled than his boss, but a company cannot be run without submission to proper authority, even if some of those in authority are not as capable as they ought to be. Elders are to be chosen among the most spiritual men of the congregation, but there may be other men in the church who are even more spiritual. Yet, for the very reason that they are spiritual, 
Those who are not in positions of leadership will submit to those who are. A church may have some women who are better Bible students, better theologians, and better speakers than any of the men. But if those women are obedient to God's order, they will submit to male leadership and will not try to usurp it simply because that is God's design. A wife can be better educated, better taught in Scripture, and more spiritually mature than her husband, which is the case in a large number of homes. But because she is spiritual, right, because she she is filled with Christ, she will willingly submit to him as the head of the family. Now, I know that doesn't play easy in culture. I understand that. But we have a loving God giving clarity and order to a world in desperate need. Let me just say this. Everyone then should know that a man is better than a woman at being a man. And everyone should know that a woman is better than a man at being a woman. That's the way God ordered this world. So I want you to think with me. I want you to think how David submitted to Saul, as wretched as Saul was. I want you to think how Christ submitted to the Sanhedrin, how Christ submitted to Pilate, and finally Christ submitted to his death. He submitted to death. And I want you to think about where we would be right now if Christ did not submit to death. I want you to think where we would be if Christ did not submit to the Father and do what had to be done. And if we do that then, we may well be able, finally, to look at submission in a whole new way. So let's say right now you're like, "Mm, I'm not getting this. One last thing from the Bible. Remember when Peter and the apostles were, were preaching the gospel early on? And they got themselves in some trouble, as it always will when you preach the gospel. And there was a group of uh, the Sanhedrin, and there was a Pharisee named uh, Gamaliel. And they're having this conversation, this argument, and finally he says, Listen, guys, if this is from God, you cannot stop it. But if it's from man, it'll stop. It'll stop. So take it easy. Submit. Trust God. Believe. Believe. It's from him. You won't be able to stop it. If it's not, it'll stop. It'll stop. Let's pray together. Father, we give glory to your name for your wisdom, for the way you order this world and the way that you love this world, even people who are in opposition to you by bringing things like conscience and civil authorities and families and even the church to maintain and restrain, restrain evil and maintain order. So God, as we uh, will come back, all spared and Lord willing, next Sunday to dive into this more, we just pray in advance for clarity, for wisdom, 
for the ability to understand and proclaim these things. These verses can be misused and people's lives can be in trouble because someone doesn't teach them correctly. And we don't want to do anything near that, God. So will you please help us now? And will you please have mercy on us? And finally, may your love and the grace of your Lord Jesus Christ and our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be ours now and forevermore. Amen.